This was, was this where we left off? For those that were here? Just look right. Alright. So we kind of had this division of the nervous system. Obviously, we start out with the nervous system as a whole. But the one thing that we have is when we start looking at the divisions, we look at kind of the central nervous system first as the brain and the spinal cord. Okay? And then we have the peripheral nervous system. And the peripheral nervous system basically is everything else. It's everything outside of those two structures. So it's going to include our uh, peripheral nerves, you know, things that you typically have heard of, your sciatic nerve, your median nerve, uh, things like your spinal nerves that actually come off of your spinal cord. Those are part of the PNS, okay? The only thing that makes up the CNS is your brain and your spinal cord. We also have a center, a couple functional organizations, or a couple functional divisions, if you will. We have to look at the sensory nervous system, which is kind of an afferent division. And we've talked about that in those two terms, afferent and efferent. Afferent is our sensory component, okay? Efferent is our motor component. And then we also kind of have little divisions of those, okay? So if we look at the sensory nervous system, it's gonna receive sensory information from receptors and transmit it to the CNS. So that's taking information from, uh, whether it be the external environment or from the internal environment, and bringing it towards the spinal cord and to the brain so that those regions can interpret that information. And so then we look at, again, two different sensory divisions, two different parts of the afferent nervous system. We have the somatic sensory nervous system, and that's stimuli that we consciously perceive. And then we have the visceral sensory system, and that's stimuli that we typically do not perceive on our own, okay? And so again, we talked about that term, that somatic term. What term, or what things are we supposed to think of when we hear that term, when we hear somatic? What are we supposed to think of right away? Skin? What else? Three things. You're supposed to just be able to rattle those off nice and quickly. If you can't, you might as well put it to memory now. Skin? What's the other two? Obviously, nobody committed that to memory. Yeah. Would it be your eyes? Not your eyes. Skin, skeletal muscle, and joints. Okay? Somatic. Skin, skeletal muscle, joint. All things we consciously perceive. Okay? We do while we're awake, while we know we're doing it. Okay? So you can detect what's on your skin. Right? Something touches it, you feel it. You can detect what's in your skeletal muscle. You detect when you move it, how you move it. And obviously then you detect the things from your joints, position, okay, called proprioception. So those are the things we should detect when we hear somatic, okay? The visceral nervous system or the visceral sensory system is things we typically don't perceive. 
you don't feel things or you don't normally feel things going on in your kidneys. You don't normally feel things going on in your stomach, although you could argue that your stomach gets upset. Uh, but again, it, stuff like that, you're not telling it what to do. It's kind of an involuntary sensory system, if you will, although that's not necessarily the terms of it. Right? And we also then have the motor nervous system or the efferent nervous system. Again, this is going to send signals out from the spinal cord to our effectors. Okay? This is the efferent division. Again, we have the somatic, motor, uh, somatic nervous system or motor system, sends voluntary signals to the skeletal muscle. Again, somatic refers to skin, skeletal muscle, and joint. Obviously, the joints aren't what actually move. Skin isn't what actually moves. And so, in this case, it's more specific to skeletal muscle, okay? The somatic motor system is for skeletal muscle. The autonomic motor system, then, is also known as the visceral motor system. And does anybody, everybody knows what visceral is, right? What is visceral? What's it referred to? Um, yeah, sort of. When we talk about it generally, though, we have a different kind of organs is really what we're looking at. Viscera is organs. Now, there is kind of a visceral tissue uh, that surrounds a lot of it. Uh, but when we typically say visceral, we're typically referring to organs, generally speaking. So our autonomic motor system or our visceral motor system sends involuntary commands to the heart smooth muscle glands. So basically, uh, you can also include essentially everything. So those were kind of some examples. Smooth muscle, though, encompasses things like your stomach, your small intestine, your large intestine, your bladder, your uh, arteries, okay? And so essentially, it's all the organs inside, okay? Now, we also then have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic division to that, okay? And those will also have different functions, and we'll get into those a little bit more detailed in, in a couple chapters. So we take a look at this, we look at the input uh, versus the output system. Input is the sensory going in, uh, sensory somatic, visceral sensory, or excuse me, somatic sensory, visceral sensory, and then we also have the efferent, the output, motor nervous system divided into the somatic motor nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. So as we start looking at some of our structures, uh, we look at the nerves in the ganglia, okay? Nerves in particular, we start with that definition. Uh, you'll want to highlight this because this is one of those definitions that uh, I typically put on a lot of quizzes, I put on a lot of exams, uh, and you'll see it repeatedly uh, multiple times. A nerve is simply a bundle of parallel axons in the PNS. Okay? So think of a nerve structure, and we'll get more into that. Uh, but we take an axon from a nerve, and we have a collection of those axons. Put a bunch of them together, that makes up a nerve. Okay? Now, we have different bundles of them and wrappings again, very similar to what we had with muscle tissue. Okay? Look at an epineurium. It encloses the entire nerve. Similar to what? 
What's the epineurium similar to in muscle tissue? I will say this is also a layer of connective tissue. Epineurium is similar to what in muscle tissue? Right, the epimecium. Okay? So that is one of our connective tissues, and that surrounds the entire nerve. The perineurium basically wraps around a fascicle of the nerve, and the fascicle is the same definition. Fascicle is a group of cells, muscle cells. This is the same thing. A fascicle is a bundle of individual neurons, which are individual parts of a nerve cell, also surrounded in irregular connective tissue. And that's surrounded by the perineurium. And we also have the deeper layer, the endoneurium, also connective tissue, and it wraps around an individual axon, okay? Again, the endoneurium is just like the endomecium in muscle tissue. It is connective tissue. It is not physically part of the cell itself. Okay? So again, not physically part of the cell. And then obviously nerves are vascularized. They gotta have a blood supply. They gotta have uh, sugar. They gotta have uh, fuel. They gotta have ATP. Okay? And so blood vessels branch through the epineurium and the perineurium to become capillaries. And this allows for the exchange between the axons and the blood, okay? So there are some, or our nerves are uh, very heavily vascularized. So take a look, we kind of do the same thing uh, with this uh, as what we did with the muscle system or the muscular system and muscle cells. Uh, and muscles themselves. But we kind of take the actual nerve and actually kind of telescope it out and it kind of gives you the ability to kind of take a look at uh, the individual coverings of a nerve from the epineurium to the perineurium to the endoneurium. Again, epineurium surrounds the entire nerve. You pull these out, you have individual fascicles, which are collections of nerve axons. You pull one of those out, surrounding that is the perineurium. Again, connective tissue. You pull one of those out, there's the individual axon, and you have the connective tissue of the endoneurium that surround that particular uh, neuron, okay? And so again, just a few examples. You can see here where the blood vessels are able to get into the nerve and actually get into the tissue to uh, have that blood supply. So if we look at a, uh, a couple of the structural classifications of nerves, we look at cranial nerves for one and spinal nerves for another. These are part of the PNS, okay? Cranial nerves and spinal nerves. Even though cranial nerves say they're from the brain, they are, they're still part of the PNS, okay? Again, PNS, or excuse me, they're part of the CNS. 
They are part of the PNS. The brain and the spinal cord are the only two things that are part of the CNS. Did I get my letters? So, we look at the cranial nerves, okay? They extend from the brain. There are 12 of them. We'll go over those a little bit later. They're all identified by a Roman numeral, okay? One through 12. Our spinal nerves all come off of our spinal cord, okay? And so as we move down our spinal cord, we have nerves that actually come off of those. And once they come off, they actually form intricate webs at certain levels. These are called plexus or plexi, okay? An individual is called a plexus, okay? And so we'll have them at different layers, and those give rise to a lot of the nerves that actually go down into the arm. When we look at the functional classifications, it's pretty simple. They either take information into the brain or into the CNS, those would be sensory neurons or sensory nerves. They're motor nerves, they're sending information out from the brain, or they're gonna be a combination of both, okay? So again, sensory, take information in, motor, send information out, mix can actually contain both. So functionally, there's only two functions really of the nervous system as a whole. Take information in, send information out. And I guess if you add the third one, it has to process the information, okay? So when we look at nerves, those are their two functions. Uh, most nerves of the body are actually in the mixed nerve category, okay? Very few do we find that are just individually sensory or just individually motor, okay? Uh, individual axons in, the, in these nerves transmit only one type of information. Uh, so again, it just kind of depends on what the actual neuron uh, is for. And then lastly, another definition that you do want to know is a ganglion. A ganglion is a cluster of neuron cell bodies in the PNS. Okay? So it's a cluster of neuron cell bodies in the PNS. Okay? So big distinction of location. So if we look at some of the characteristics of neurons, there are a few things that it has to be able to do. One, it's gotta be excitable. Okay? It's gotta be able to respond to stimuli, very similar to muscle tissue. Muscle tissue is also excitable. It responds to a stimulus, or in our case, an action potential. This excitability or the stimulus basically causes the change in the cell membrane, okay? or the cell membrane potential. Knowing that we have a resting mem membrane potential that sits around minus 70, uh, when it gets excited, we have that change uh, in voltage, it becomes more positive, okay? Or typically, I should say, becomes more positive. Uh, in neurons, we're gonna see that it actually, or they actually, can become a little bit more negative at times. They also have to uh, have conductivity. So we have to be able to send or move a signal down the tissue, okay? So we have to be able to propagate an action or an electrical signal, basically the action. Uh, and this is provided, or this is done because of the voltage-gated channels that typically are set along the membrane sequentially, okay? They also have to have, or be able to secrete, okay? So we have to be able to release a neurotransmitter in response to some sort of conductive activity, okay? And we've talked about this at the neuromuscular junction with the axon terminal and how it releases acetylcholine, okay? And so the messenger is released from the vesicle to influence the target cell. It has to have, or not it has to have, it does have extreme longevity, okay? Neurons, 
typically last throughout in, throughout a person's entire life. Okay, so they have a characteristic, basically the next line that they are called amitotic, which essentially means they cannot be replaced or the mitotic activity is lost. Which means again, if they can't be or if they can't divide, you can't replace them. So amitotic simply means cannot be replaced. So once you lose a neuron, you lose a neuron. Okay. Now, specifically when we talk about that, it's not about the axon. It's really about the cell body. Okay? You can regenerate an axon. You cannot regenerate the cell body. So once the cell body is dead, uh, essentially that cell is dead from a neuron perspective. It's why typically when you have some sort of brain injury, uh, especially significant ones that kill off certain areas of the brain, uh, it's why you lose a lot of function, uh, whether it's sensory function or motor function. And when you, if you ever do get some of it back, it's never as good as what it was before. Okay? There's usually some sort of, even just a minor deficit. Okay? But we'll talk about some, other, some of those other things a little bit later, as far as being hematotic and how we uh, kind of bypass that. Um, when we look at the neuron then, so a neuron is basically the overall structure or, or the overall type of cell that we have, okay? A neuron really is the communicative type of cell that we have uh, in the human body that really sends signals from point A to point B. Now we have a lot of other, uh, ner other nerve cells, but from a conductive perspective, the neuron really is the cell that does that, okay? And so we have a lot of different parts uh, of this neuron, mainly three. The first one is the cell body, also called the soma, okay? That cell body does have a plasma membrane uh, that encloses the cytoplasm called the perichorion. The cell body obviously is the major part of the cell, so it's gonna contain the nucleus, and it also has conductivity components to it or characteristics to it. It's going to initiate some of our graded potentials, which we have talked about a little bit, we'll talk about more uh, as we go on. It's gonna receive others from our next part of the cell called the dendrites. And then it's also gonna conduct these potentials to our third part of the cell, which is the axon, okay? So the second part is the dendrites. The dendrites are typically, or not typically, they are short, unmyelinated processes that branch off of the cell body. Now, does anybody know what myelinated means? Right, so myelin, or the myelin sheet, as you may have heard it called, is basically an insulating component to the axon, right? <coughs> Dendrites are unmyelinated, which means there is no myelination to it, okay? So again, they're very short processes. Uh, this is the input region of the cell. Okay? This is where information is coming into the neuron. Okay? Which then leads us to uh, the last part of the neuron, or the second, the, I guess, yeah, the third part of the neuron. Uh, and this really is kind of the most important one. Okay? Uh, and this is the axon. This is essentially what gives us the action potential. It's the major communication part 
of the cell. Okay? It's got a long process that emanates from the cell body. Okay? We talked about the length of some of our cells and that the neuron itself can be the longest cell of the human body. And it can be as long as what? Ballpark. Yeah, three, four feet, depending on how tall you are. Uh, that's a very long cell. The length really comes from the axon as it extends from the cell body that typically is going to be located in your spinal cord. And then that axon basically extends all the way down to wherever it's going. The axon is going to make contact with other neurons, with other muscle cells, or with other gland cells as we tell our bodies what to do. Okay? Again, the muscle or the neuro, uh, the neurological system is the communication system for the body. It attaches to the cell body at a location called the axon hillock. And the axon hillock is the cone-shaped region. As we have our cell body and we come off of the cell body to form the axon, and it becomes this long string, the axon hillock is the V-shape or the triangular or the cone-shaped region of the soma. Okay? The cytoplasm is called the axoplasm. The membrane is called the axolemma similar to what we have with sarcoplasm and sarcolemma for muscle tissue. Uh, there are going to be branches off of that axon. Those branches are called axon collaterals. Okay? So branches are called axon collaterals. And then we also look at uh, the ends of our axons. We know we have the axon terminals. Uh, when we look at several of them, we actually, actually call them telodendria. Okay? So the ends, or the terminals of our axons, are called telodendria, and then the tips of those telodendria are called synaptic knobs. Okay? And that's where that uh, axon is, it comes in, in our case, the neuromuscular junction that we talked about. It's where the axon kind of bulges out, and that's where we contain all of our uh, synapses with our acetylcholine. Those, again, are the synaptic knobs. And those synaptic knobs house the synaptic vesicles. Now that we're talking about neurons in general, now it's not just acetylcholine that they house, it's a neurotransmitter, okay? So it can be multiple neurotransmitters, depending on what type of reaction we're trying to get, right? It could be an excitatory reaction, or it could be an inhibitory reaction. And axons then, axons then function to conduct the action potentials and then release the neurotransmitter at the synaptic knobs. Okay? The other parts of the neuron, which are not as uh, significant from a conductive perspective, but have more of a structural component, is the cytoskeleton. And they're composed of micro, uh, microfilaments, intermediate filaments, and microtubules, all of which we basically have talked about. And when we look at the intermediate filaments, we call those neurofilaments. Okay? And they aggregate to form bundles called neurofibrils, and essentially they are providing a lot of strength to the tissue. And that's kind of what all of these do. One, they provide strength, structure, and then they do allow for movement of different structures within the cell. Okay? So again, that is the cytoskeleton. So pretty straightforward, pretty basic on, on that component of it. If we look at the neuron, this is kind of a very basic or very generic uh, neuron as far as how it looks. Uh, here's the cell body, this great big uh, blob in the middle. Okay? 
And then you see all of these extensions coming off of it. Uh, the kind of lighter blue structure is part of the myelin sheet, okay? Specifically called, uh, it looks like in this case, a Schwann cell, um, which we'll talk about in just a second, or a neurolemocyte, uh, as they're both called, or as they're called. Um, so you can see here's the cell body. Here's the unmyelinated dendrites. Again, this is the input region of the cell. Here is the cell body as it kind of sends the information down. Here's our axon hillock, the triangle shape, as it comes off of the cell body and moves into the axon. And then here's our axon, okay? And again, that's more the conductive region or the output region of the cell, okay? And you can see here we have this axon collateral as it just kind of branches off uh, of the main axon that goes down to a different, uh, different cell. You'll see down here, I know it's a little bit hard to see on the screen. Here's the terminal extensions, all the telodendria, uh, the branches of that ending of the axon. And then deep down, as far as the, the extensions go, you can see the little knobs on the ends of them. Those are synaptic knobs. Again, we know the neurotransmitters are contained within those synaptic knobs, okay? All right, so now we have to start looking at different things as far as how uh, the neurons move, how substances within the neurons move as well, okay? And so as they wanna start to move things to and from the body, there's a couple different types of transport that we use. And the transport really is named for the way or the direction that things are moving. So if we have anterograde transport, this is from the cell body. So we're moving, and essentially, we're kind of moving anterior, anteriorly, or down the flow of what we would normally think of when we think of an action potential, even though this has nothing to do with the action potential. But we're moving away from the cell body, okay? So this is moving newly synthesized material toward our synaptic knobs. Retrograde transport basically means backwards, okay? This is to or toward the cell body. It's gonna move used materials from the axon for breakdown and recycling back toward the soma or back toward the cell body. This can occur by fast axonal transport or slow axonal transport, okay? Basically, it's all determined by the speed, okay? Fast is obviously a lot quicker than what slow is. If we look at fax axonal transport, I know this doesn't seem like a lot, but it occurs at about 400 millimeters per day, okay? 400 millimeters per day, not all that fast. It's gonna involve movement along the microtubules, okay? So again, Part of that cytoskeleton that uses that we use for transport. Uh, along those microtubules, we're using uh, motor proteins, and motor proteins require ATP. So we have to split ATP, use the energy from it, split it into ADP and inorganic phosphate. And anterograde or retrograde motion is possible. So fast axonal transport can actually be toward or away from the cell body or toward the cell body. Couple examples of what uh, anterograde and retrograde uh, would move uh, with this type of transport. 
Anterograde is the movement of vesicles, organelles, and collective proteins. Retrograde back to the cell body. It is used vesicles and then some uh, potentially harmful structures. Things that either the cell needs to break down uh, or recycle in a sense. Slow axonal transport occurs at about 0.1 to 3 millimeters per day. So obviously significantly slower, okay? It's gonna result from the flow of the axoplasm itself. Axoplasm basically is the cytoplasm of the axon, okay? Uh, things that move this direction or with this type of transport uh, are gonna be moved from the cell body toward the synaptic knob. These are gonna include enzymes, cytoskeletal components, and then new axoplasm, okay? So just a few examples of what gets moved quickly versus what's get, what gets moved slowly. Okay. So when we start looking at neurons, then we've classified the nervous system and we classified nerves, but now we have to look at the classification of neurons themselves. And so we have a structural classification first. Okay. So structural classification is based on the structure of the cell specifically the number of processes that we have coming off of the soma or the cell body again, right? Multipolar is the most common type. Roughly 99% of your cells in your body, or neurons I should say, are multipolar, okay? There are many dendrites, so a lot of stuff coming in, but there's one axon, okay? That is a multipolar neuron. A bipolar neuron, Bi means two, so we have one dendrite, one axon. These are the rarest types. We typically see these mostly in the retina of the eye, okay? So very limited number. And then lastly, we have unipolar neurons, okay? So unipolar neurons have one process that comes off of the cell body, but then it actually extends or splits off into two processes. And that's gonna give us a peripheral process and a central process. Now, unipolar neurons, or pseudo-unipolar, uh, as we call a lot of times call them, are mostly found in the sensory aspect of the nervous system, okay? And so the information typically is going from the body to our CNX, okay? Through the brain spinal cord. And so the peripheral process is the part that really extends out into the rest of the body. It splits into several receptive dendrites, comes into the cell body, and then goes out through the central process. And the central process then leads to the synaptic knobs that are found in the CNS, okay? We'll find most of these cell bodies in what we call the dorsal root ganglia, okay? Again, if you remember what ganglia are, they're collections of cell bodies found in the PNS. A lot of our unipolar neurons are gonna be found in the dorsal root ganglia that's actually found right along the spinal column, okay? Or just off of uh, your spinal cord. And we'll talk about that when we get into the CNS. We also then have functional classifications. And this basically follows, or, or kind of follows the functions of the nervous system. Going back to the first couple slides, uh, of this chapter. The nervous system really has three functions. Sense or take in information, process it, decide on a response, and send it out. 
So our functional classifications kind of represent that, okay? So the functional classification is according to the direction that they propagate or generate the action potential. Which direction are they actually sending that signal? So we have a sensory neuron. These are afferent neurons. They conduct input from the somatic and visceral receptors toward the CNS. Again, most of these are unipolar, okay? Some of them obviously in the retina of the eye are bipolar. Motor neurons conduct output from the CNS to the somatic and visceral effectors. So whether this is the um, somatic motor system or the autonomic motor system, whether we're going to muscle tissue, skeletal muscle tissue, or whether we're going to the viscera, doesn't matter. These are motor neurons or efferent neurons. Most of these, or virtually all of these, are multipolar, okay? And then lastly, we have inner neurons. And these are what we call association neurons. They're the ones that are found in our CNS, and they have the job of basically being the brain of the nervous system, not necessarily the brain of the body, but the brain of the nervous system. They're gonna receive, process, and integrate information from many other neurons, okay? So this is kind of like the, uh, essentially kind of like the microchip of a computer that basically processes everything that goes on, okay? And this allows us to have a communicative link between sensory and motor neurons. These are located within the CNS and make up about 99% of our neurons. So more than likely, these are also going to be multipolar, okay? If multipolar make up 99% and inner neurons make up 99% of the functional classification, seems the reason that most inner neurons are going to be multipolar, okay? So again, take in information, process the information, and then send it back out. Afferent division coming in, association areas in the CNS, efferent division going back out, okay? So that is our basic classification or the functional classifications of neurons. This is a graphic of the spinal cord, okay? We will talk about this a lot later, or what I think will be a lot later. When we talk about the dorsal root ganglia, here, is our dorsal root ganglion, okay, or at least one of them, okay? Again, we have the sensory region out here. Uh, this is a unipolar cell where we have all the cell bodies that kind of uh, group together in that ganglia. Again, this is a unipolar cell. So what process is this of a unipolar cell then? There were two processes on it. Which one is that? means this one is which one? The central process. It's 
going toward the CNS, so carrying that information toward, in this case, our spinal cord. We have an inner neuron here. Remember, inner neurons are located within the CNS. This is a part of the CNS. So there's our inner neuron, and now we have our multipolar neuron in the efferent division as it sends the signal out, in this case, to a skeletal muscle. Okay? So that is kind of the process or the pathway of sensory to motor uh, in the spinal cord. A little bit different. Uh, so uh, I think the class average came out to right around a 72. Uh, so not terrible, uh, certainly not the greatest we've had, but uh, certainly not the worst. Um, for those of you wondering, uh, I know some of you have sent me an email. Our final exam uh, is on the Tuesday of finals week. So it's actually no different than just coming to class regularly in class on Thursday. Our final is in this room, 8 o'clock the following Tuesday. So it's just like coming to class on a regular schedule. There's no gap or anything. Uh, bonus quiz for exam three uh, should be up right after class today, so right around um, 9.15. Um, and so you'll have until Sunday at 11.59 to complete that. And otherwise, I don't think I have anything else. Yes? Uh, there will be on the final, the final will consist of two separate tests, if you will. It'll be the day of test four, and it will also be uh, the cumulative final. So the cumulative final is basically 50 questions. Uh, exam four, uh, I have not decided yet. In the past, um, we had exam four before the final, and then we would also have a section of new material on the, or as a part of the final. So for example, we do four exams, and then the day of the final, we have a small section of like 38 questions. And then you'd have the final exam. This time, uh, they're kind of combined. So there's the department final exam, which is cumulative, includes everything. And then there's also going to be the exam four, which is a lot of the material that we're covering effective chapter 12. So chapter 12, 13, 14, 15. I don't think we get to 16. I'll have to double check, but I'm sh pretty sure it's a 13, 14, 15. 12, 13, 14, 15. But yes, to answer your question, it will include everything. But it will not be my final, it will be the department's final. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, Obviously, if you choose to, um, you're more than welcome to come up after class, take a look at the exams, see what you did, didn't do, um, got right, got wrong, all that stuff. Uh, ask questions, fire away, you're more than welcome to. Okay? Office doors open there. <clears throat> I believe, was this roughly where we left off? Because I think the slide right before that was, I guess, nothing. Because I believe this is where we kind of left off. We talked about MS uh, and kind of what MS was. So uh, here we kind of start talking about the regeneration <coughs> of our axons and some of our neurons. 
different parts of it. And so one of the first things we have to look at is, did we touch on what, what the word amatotic means yet? Can we just define that? Okay, we'll get to that here shortly. So when we look at the nervous system, one thing that we have to understand is that neurons are amatotic, okay? And so what amatotic means is that neurons cannot be replaced. And again, we talked about the length of time that neurons last. And they basically are there when you're born, and they last essentially the entire length of your life. Okay? So with that said, then, if they can't be replaced, then how do we get axon regeneration? Well, the key is what we're regenerating. Okay? So after traumatic injuries, PNS axons can regenerate. Okay? And so we have a couple things. Regeneration is possible if the neuron cell body is still intact, and if there's enough neurolemma that remains, okay? And regeneration success is more likely if the amount of damage is less extensive, I think that's pretty straightforward, and the distance between the site of damage and the structure it innervates is short. So if there's a short distance between the end of the damage and the effector, we're also gonna have better regeneration, okay? So if we look at some of the steps of regeneration, one, we have the first step, which is the axon is severed. So there's some sort of injury to it. Here we have the area proximal to the cut. Uh, at this point, the axon seals off and swells. Distal to the cut, the axon and the sheet degenerate, okay? And this is called Wallerian degeneration, okay? And so at this point, uh, the sheet degenerates, but the neurolemma survives, okay? So the neurolemma survives. Uh, the neurolemma and the endoneurium form a regeneration tube, so basically kind of a, an enclosure where we're able to have regeneration. The axon regenerates uh, and is guided by nerve growth factors that are released by our neurolemocytes. And then the axon reinnervates the original effector or the sensory receptor, okay? And so essentially we just have this growth that occurs within this tube that's created, okay? And so here's kind of the regeneration, the, the few steps, kind of put it into graphical form. Again, I know with the white graphic and the white board of their, the white screen, it's kind of uh, makes it a little more difficult to see. But if you take a look at the axon here, the cell body is intact. Here you see the axons uh, damaged. So it severs the axon itself. We have this regeneration tube. You can see where uh, the proximal end swells off. We break down everything that's distal. We create this regeneration tube. And now that axon actually begins to regenerate and remyelinate itself uh, as it moves down. So again, you can kind of see again where this is and what happens through here. All of this stuff, the neurolemma, the Schwann cells, uh, the rest of the axon, all of that stuff is broken down. So essentially we are creating a new axon going toward uh, the effector, okay? And so again, the axon begins to regenerate, premyelination occurs, and then we have new innervation as it leaves that uh, myelin sheet then in that endoneurium uh, as it exits into the effector. Now that was PNS regeneration. CNS regeneration is actually extremely limited, okay? And mainly it's because of our oligodendrocytes. We know oligodendrocytes functionally do what? 
What, are the what is the function of oligodendrocytes? Where? Right. So we have oligodendrocytes that create the myelin sheath within the CNS. One thing they also have is they also secrete a growth inhibiting molecule or hormone. Okay? And so it limits the amount of regeneration that can take place within the CNS. Uh, large numbers of axons crowd the CNS. Regrowth is obstructed by scars from the astrocytes and other connective tissue that have formed from various injuries and stuff. So again, we're looking at a very compact area, first off. But number two, we also just have this, this growth inhibiting uh, effect that takes place. Okay. Now we also look at different pumps. Uh, again, some of these that we've already, uh, in some way, shape, or form, mostly talked about already. Uh, we have membrane proteins that make a concentration gradient by moving substances against their concentration gradient. They do require energy. Uh, neurons also have sodium potassium pumps and calcium pumps in their membranes. Uh, obviously, we've talked about that with the neuromuscular junction, uh, and especially near and at the axon terminal. Uh, protein pores in the membrane allow ions to move down their concentration gradient into or out of the cell. Uh, again, these are more leakage channels. Uh, when they open, they, are, they have specificity, so they only allow certain things to actually get into and out of the cell. Again, we have leakage channels. These are passive. They're always open for continuous diffusion. We have chemically gated channels, which open uh, only in response to certain chemicals, also known as ligand-gated channels. Okay? And once they open, they allow flow uh, down the concentration gradients. And then we have voltage-gated channels, which we've talked about already. Uh, again, normally closed, but they open when there's some sort of change in voltage. Okay? When we look at our uh, voltage-gated sodium channels, there are really three states uh, within our sodium channel. Okay? We have the resting state. In this case, we also, I, I, let me take a step back. When we look at the voltage-gated sodium channel, we also have to understand that there are two gates on that sodium channel. Okay? There's an activation gate and there's an inactivation gate, one on either side, essentially. Okay? In a resting state, when there's no activity, and there's no ion flowing, okay? essentially there's no activity with the uh, neuron or the muscle cell, the activation gates are closed, okay? and the inactivation gates are open. Okay? So one of them is closed, one of them is open. At this point, the entry of sodium is prevented. Again, one of them is closed, blocks the channel, can't open. During the activation state, the activation gate is open, because there is a voltage change. The inactivation gate is also open. So now during the activation state, both are open, ions can actually flow through the channel. And then lastly, as we move into the, or the inactivation state, excuse me, we now have the opposite, okay? Now we have the activation gate is still open from being stimulated open. The inactivation gates close in an effort to stop the flow of sodium. So the entry of sodium is prevented. Now this state, however, only lasts a very short time. The channel basically quickly resets and moves back into the resting state where essentially those gates switch, the inactivation gates open, and the activation gate then closes back up, okay? And so those are the three, essentially the three phases uh, of a sodium 
Here you get a chance to kind of see it. Because again, they have two gates, they can be in three different states. The resting, where the activation gate is closed. Activation, where they're both open. And then inactivation, where the activate or the inactive uh, or inactivation gate is closed and the activation gate is open. Uh, as far as looking at how these ion channels are distributed, uh, keep in mind, and I know it's sometimes hard to visualize, but understand that our cells are not a two-dimensional structure. It's not just what you see up on the screen. Okay? We have this 3D structure, typically of some sort of uh, oval or circular type of cell, uh, generally speaking. And so not only do we have this straight line across, but we also have the depth perspective going essentially into the screen. And so essentially what we're looking at is how do we see these channels uh, across the entire membrane? Okay? And they are distributed across the entire membrane, okay? All over the place. There's thousands of them on any individual cell. And so again, we look at the entire membrane of the neuron, we have leakage channels, uh, both sodium and potassium leakage channels. We have sodium and potassium pumps throughout the entire, um, throughout the entire uh, membrane. And all of these together then help to maintain that resting membrane potential from both a concentration perspective but also from a voltage perspective. And we've kind of talked about that when we talked about the resting membrane potential. When we look at the functional segments uh, of a neuron, uh, we have the input and the receptive and the conductive regions. We'll talk about each of those, okay? So when we look at the receptive re region, we've talked about the cell parts already. When we look at a neuron, we have the dendrites. Dendrites are unmyelinated. We have the cell body, cell body is unmyelinated. We have the axon hillock where it comes down into a V uh, as it leads into the axon, which can be myelinated or unmyelinated, okay? And so when we look at those four, par four major parts, really, and even going down into the synaptic knob in um, the axon terminal, the first area that we have is the receptive region. And the receptive region is essentially the input region, okay? So this is going to be the dendrite in the cell body. We still have the chemically gated channels. Um, we'll also see chemically gated chlorine channels or chloride channels, okay? which again leads us into either having a positive response or excitatory with uh, sodium channels, or we could have a negative response or an inhibitory response. Okay? We have the uh, initial region, uh, which is the axon hillock, where if we have enough signal coming in from the input region going into the cell body and down into the axon hillock, we can actually generate an action potential uh, if we reach threshold. Uh, these are the voltage-gated sodium channels and voltage-gated potassium channels uh, that basically help to accomplish that. We also then have the conductive region, and this is essentially the axon and its branches. This is where we conduct the action potential and conduct it down the axon into the rest of the body, okay? Again, voltage-gated sodium channels and voltage-gated potassium channels. And then we have the transmissive, re transmissive region. This is the synaptic knobs, the axon terminals. It's uh, also the, um, I just slipped my mind, uh, the area where we essentially release our acetylcholine or in a neuron case, our neurotransmitter, okay? And so we also have the voltage-gated calcium channels 
and calcium pumps that we saw uh, with the neuromuscular junction. And so this, <clears throat> so this cell here basically shows us where a lot of these neuron or where a lot of these channels are located within the neuron. Again, the cell body and the dendrites. This is the input or the receptive region where we receive information coming in. Here's this initial segment. This is the initiating area where we're starting to initiate the action potential if it's strong enough and if it reaches threshold. And then lastly, we have that conductive region where we send the action potential down, right? And then obviously, lastly, we have the transmissive region where we release our neurotransmitter uh, into the next cell. So as we continue looking at the neuron itself and we look at some of the electrical uh, differences and electrical components of it or characteristics, we also have to look at just a tad bit of physics, okay? And so one, we have to look at what electrical energy is because that's what we're creating. We're creating electrical energy and electrical charges across cells. So electrical energy is the movement of charged particles. The neuron activity is dependent upon this electrical current. Okay? And so one of the things we look at, obviously, is voltage. And voltage is measure, measured as potential energy. It's the amount of difference in electrical charge between two places. Uh, measured in volts or millivolts. And obviously, for our purposes, we're really looking mostly at millivolts. And when we look at the cell, we're actually looking at the charge inside the cell versus the charge on the outside of the cell. So that is where our difference is. The current is actually the movement of charged particles across a barrier that separates them. So now we're looking at movement of charged particles across the plasma membrane. And we can utilize this current actually to do work, which is what our cells do. And then we have resistance. Uh, this is the opposition to movement of charged particles. And this increase or an increase in resistance lowers the current. Right? So just kind of a few components to uh, neurons. And then we actually look at Ohm's law. Okay? And Ohm's law, uh, the definition or the, uh, the equation would be current equals voltage over resistance. Okay? So the current increases with larger voltage and smaller resistance. And as we look at it, how it applies really then to neurons, uh, charged particles are the ions, and the current is generated when ions diffuse through channels. Again, we obviously have all of our voltage-gated channels, but we also have our leakage channels. And so all of this movement actually causes or creates uh, a change in voltage or creates the current. Voltage uh, exists across the membrane due to unequal distribution of ions. We know this through leakage channels, through sodium potassium pumps, and our uh, concentration gradients. And the membrane, the membrane offers resistance to ion flow, and this resistance changes due to the actions of gated channels. Okay? And the resistance decreases when channels open. So not only do we have the plasma membrane, which is the barrier, we also have no way for them to actually get across unless our channels are open. And so the channels are also a way for us to show resistance. When we look at the characteristics of resting neurons, um, a lot of this stuff is going to be, at least what I hope anyway, when we start to think about everything that we've talked about, especially with the neuromuscular junction, I'm kind of hoping that a lot of this is pretty straightforward and, and mostly self-explanatory, okay? So if we look at some of the characteristics of our resting neurons, 
In this case, the ions are un unevenly distributed across the plasma membrane due to the actions of our sodium potassium pumps. We know we have a higher concentration of potassium in the cytosol compared to the uh, interstitial fluid or the ECF. Uh, higher concentrations of sodium, chlorine, calcium are higher in the ECF or the interstitial fluid than what they are in the cytosol. Again, all stuff that we've, we've covered so far. Gated channels are closed in functional segments of the cell. We know that in a resting cell, we just have leakage channels open. There's an electrical charge difference across the membrane. Cytosol is relatively negative compared to the ECF. Uh, the resting membrane potential is typically low, about minus 70. And this difference can be measured with electrodes, one inside the cell, one outside the cell. And we hook that up to a voltmeter, okay, which measures the actual voltage. So again, neurons at rest, <coughs> relatively straightforward. Uh, most of that we should have already known already. Again, just kind of goes over all those channels all over again. Voltage-gated potassium channels, voltage-gated sodium channels. Uh, now, we kind of add one here. We now look at chemically-gated uh, chlorine channels or chloride channels. So we have a little bit of a difference. But again, when we look at everything that we've talked about so far in a neuron and in a neuromuscular junction, here we have our neuron. Here we have our axon pillow. When we start to stimulate all of this these dendrites in this input region, again, we may have connections at multiple, we will have connections basically at different dendrites. And so we're causing a signal, an action potential to arrive at multiple locations. Those multiple locations will create their own small little creative potentials by opening up a lot of those uh, voltage gated sodium channels. And remember, they are unmyelinated. So uh, what is the purpose of myelination? Maybe we should touch on that real quick. Uh, protection for one, yes. It's not the main function though. Yeah, by essentially insulating it, right? So myelination helps to increase the speed of the signal by insulating that particular part of the neuron. When we look up here, these are unmyelinated. The dendrites are always unmyelinated. The cell body is unmyelinated. So with being unmyelinated, we have the ability to lose some of the signal. So as a lot of these signals come in, if we get enough of them that cause a stimulus to reach threshold, that's how we're actually able to generate this action potential down our, uh, down our axon. Right? And so once we do that, we again start to open up all these voltage-gated sodium channels, increase uh, the influx of sodium, makes the cell more positive, and we send that signal all the way down the axon until we get to the synaptic knob where we stimulate uh, voltage-gated calcium channels, which cause calcium into the axon terminal, forces acetylcholine, or I guess should say, forces the neurotransmitter to be released at that point, okay? So again, we still look at some of the neuron, or look at neurons at rest. Again, uh, soda, excuse me, potassium diffusion is the most important factor in setting the resting membrane potential. Again, we're looking at what is the resting membrane potential of most cells? What's the number? Negative 70. Say it again. Negative 70. <clears throat> and so in order to get that, we're basically forcing out positive ions from the cell, right? Because it's the inside of the cell that's at minus 70. So, so or excuse me, potassium diffusion out of the cell, more positive ions leaving, is really what helps to generate that as far as what's the most important ion. So potassium diffusion out of the cell, 
uh, due to its concentration gradient. Diffusion out is limited by the electrical gradient. So there is a small little hole of trying to pull some of those sodium ions back in. Or excuse me, potassium ions back in. If potassium were the only ion that leaked, the resting membrane potential would be where the sodium, or excuse me, where the potassium concentration and electrical gradients are at equilibrium, which would be about minus 90 millivolts. Okay? However, since there are some uh, sodium leakage channels, sodium also has a small influence on the resting membrane potential. And so sodium diffuses in due to its concentration gradient and the electrical gradient. And this small sodium leakage means that the resting membrane potential is slightly less negative. More positive ions coming into the cell makes that resting membrane potential a little bit more positive. So instead of minus 90, we're looking at minus 70. Okay? So this, these last couple slides really have, have a lot of words on them. Okay? But we really can simplify this down to uh, just a couple things. One, resting membrane potential is minus 70. Two, potassium diffusion is the most important in setting what that resting membrane potential is. And then three and four really are looking at where those ions are the greatest in concentrations. Obviously, sodium is greater outside the cell, potassium is greater inside the cell. And those ions eventually move down their concentration gradients. Okay? Again, resting membrane potential, the role of sodium potassium pump, we're actually pushing three positive charges out and pushing in only two. The pump contributes to about three millivolts of the minus 70. Uh, more importantly, it maintains the concentration gradients for these ions because again, these ions are moving which direction? As far as the leakage channels go, which direction? Down their concentration gradients or against their concentration gradients? With leakage channels. Leakage channels, they move down. Our sodium potassium pumps then actually move those ions which direction? Against. Against. So now we're actually pushing them back to where they started. And these sodium potassium pumps then help to maintain the concentration gradients so that we're able to actually maintain then uh, our electrical gradient. Okay? We kind of take a look at this uh, as you need to. Again, it just kind of shows what ions are there, what channels are there, uh, which directions they're moving, and what the resting membrane potential is. Okay. Again, here's that overview of each of the segments. Uh, again, the receptive region, uh, the dendrites in the cell body. This is the input region where information is coming in. The initial segment, uh, the axon hillock. The conductive segment, the action potential moves down the axon. And then the transmission segment, or the uh, secretory zone, I guess you could call it, because we are secreting our neurotransmitters. Okay. Now, if we look at the receptive segment, okay, we have to look at graded potentials. Okay, and we've already talked about one graded potential in particular, and that graded potential uh, was an end plate potential. Okay. Again, they occur in the dendrites in the cell body, so they occur in unmyelinated unmyelinated regions. So they are sh uh, very small, short-lived changes within that resting membrane potential. Okay? Again, they're established in the receptive segment by the opening of chemically gated ion channels. 
Again, local, local currents are short-lived, and they can vary in degree of change in direction of change of the resting membrane potential, okay? Which means they can make it become more positive, make that part of the cell become more positive, or it can make them become more negative, okay? And they can be large or small, okay? And the other thing is, in conjunction with uh, becoming more positive or negative, we have these two terms. They can cause a depolarization or a hyperpolarization, okay? Now, depolarization, knowing what we know about the action potential, a depolarization is gonna make the cell more positive or negative? Depolarization is gonna make the cell more positive. Then we have the reverse, hyperpolarization. That then is gonna make the cell more negative, okay? And again, a lot of it has to do with the channels that are open and what ions are getting into the cell. But again, the key here for graded potentials, short-lived, small changes, okay? So, the graded potentials in a postsynaptic neuron cause postsynaptic potentials, okay? So these are going to be on the postsynaptic neuron, okay? The one that's after the synapse. If we have a postsynaptic potential that results in a depolarization, it's called an EPSP, or an excitatory postsynaptic potential, okay? An excitatory postsynaptic potential. If that postsynaptic potential results in a hyperpolarization, it's called an inhibitory postsynaptic potential, okay? Then again, we can have numerous postsynaptic potentials generated because the postsynaptic neuron can basically bind many neurotransmitters simultaneously. We also have many different synapses throughout an individual neuron, okay? We're not just connecting one neuron to the next. We could potentially be connecting 20 neurons to one neuron. And what happens if all 20 of those are sending a signal with? We can have 20 at one time, 20 EPSPs. As they move down the dendrites and into the cell body, they can actually add up to generate an action potential down that one axon, okay? So excitatory postsynaptic potentials, or EPSPs, are depolarizations. And they're caused because we have an influx of sodium. This is what we typically think of uh, up to this point where we've had um, action potentials or graded potentials, where we have the influx of sodium, right? or it makes the cell more positive, okay? Now, with an IPSP, though, it's a little bit different, okay? So take a look here. This is our axon terminal connecting to our dendrite. We have the axon or the synaptic knob, synap or axon terminal releasing our neurotransmitter. It causes a um, opening of sodium channel, voltage-gated sodium, excuse me, ligand-gated channels that causes a uh, increase in sodium into the cell makes the cell more positive. You can see the chart down here. This is an example of an EPSP. It's a very short blip, right, on that chart measuring our voltage. This represents our threshold stimulus line. If we don't reach this point, we don't get an action potential. So we get an EPSP, short-lived, it peaks, comes back down, we generate the EPSP, but we don't actually have enough to generate a signal to the rest of the body and down that particular neuron, 
Okay. Now we look at IPSPs. Okay. So IPSPs are the reverse. Here we're going to have a different neurotransmitter. And this different neurotransmitter is going to cause an inhibitory response. Okay? And so, as we release the neurotransmitter, it's going to bind to chemically gated uh, or ligand gated channels for uh, potassium or chlorine. If they open potassium channels, which direction does potassium move? Into or out of the cell? Out. Which direction? To move out. Yeah. And so if potassium moves out, what does it do to that cell? Makes it more? Negative. Negative, right? If we have chlorine, chlorine is going, or as they open that channel, which direction is chlorine going to move? In. In. Chlorine is a negative, or the chloride ion is a negative ion. So we have chloride ions moving in. That's going to make the cell more negative. And so you see that here. Here we have this change in voltage. Once we have the stimulus, it becomes more negative. Again, just a small blip, and then it comes right back. Okay? And so that's the difference between an EPSP and an IPSP. One's excitatory, brings us closer to the threshold. One's inhibitory, brings us farther away from threshold. But now look at this cell. Okay? Now we have a whole bunch of different synapses together. You can see see this one has there's a connection with one neuron but it's got two synapses there's a synapse there's a synapse there's two synapses two synapses three synapses two so we're probably looking at 15 to 20 synapses on this one individual cell okay and note some of them are green some of them are going to cause EPSPs some of them are red they're going to cause IPSPs okay now imagine having a signal from, looks like, what is there, 10, 10 individual neurons, okay? Imagine having 10 different uh, synaptic potentials, postsynaptic potentials coming in on all of these different neurons. Some of them are excitatory, some of them are inhibitory. When they all come together, move down the dendrites, okay? They all come in. Add in the dendrites. All those signals start to fizzle out, but they're all meeting at the uh, cell body. When you add EPSPs and IPSPs together, what do you think is happening to the voltage? Bunch of positive stuff together, add in with a bunch of negative stuff together. Basically, it cancels everything out. Okay? So we have what we call summation, where we're adding them together. Now what happens if all of these were EPSPs? They all have this change in voltage, making it more negative. They all come in at one time. They all hit the cell body at the same time. You think that's going to be enough to reach threshold? Probably. You know, even think about what's, what's the voltage difference between resting and threshold, roughly. How many millivolts? Pretty sure we talked about the voltage of what threshold normally is. If resting membrane potential is minus 70, what is that threshold number? Or at least what's the difference between the two? Negative 
Right. So negative 55 to 50 is about threshold. So what difference is that? About how many millivolts? Simple math. 15. Okay. So if all of these, you know, all we have all these connections, if each connection only made a difference of two millivolts, and by the time it reached the cell body was one millivolt, and we have 20 connections, is that enough to actually generate an action potential then? 20 millivolt change got us to about minus 50. We reached threshold, did we not? And so we are able to generate an action potential there. Right? What if we had a bunch of IPSPs though? Let's say we had 20 IPSPs, all of them sending in a two millivolt change. By the time it got to the cell body, they were all one millivolt changes. That's a 20 millivolt change. Is that enough to create an action potential? Critical thinking skills. <clears throat> Perfect. Everybody gets a vote here. How many say, yes, that's enough to generate an action potential? How many say, no, that's not enough to create an action potential? And now why? Why do you say it's not enough to create an action potential? We're going further away from the threshold. What's that? We're going further away from the threshold. You are correct. Remember, IPSPs do what? Negatively. Add more negative. Move away from threshold. So if we add one and add a second and add a third, add a fourth, are we getting anywhere close to threshold? No. So IPSPs will never add up to create an action potential. They're always going to inhibit. That's why they're called inhibitories. Okay? So, kind of leads us right into summation. Summation of EPSPs and IPSPs are going to occur at the axon villa. They come in through the dendrites, they kind of start to add in this cell body, but the true addition, whether they generate an action potential or not, occurs at the axon villa. We're actually ready to generate the action potential down the axon. The sum may or may not reach threshold memory potential for initiating that AP. Uh, if the threshold is, or the threshold is the minimum voltage change required, we know that typically about minus 55. <clears throat> and generally, multiple EPSPs must be added to reach threshold. So what that means is one EPSP cannot generate an action potential, okay? If you have one EPSP, you actually have no signal on the actual axon itself. It's as if nothing ever happened, okay? So again, one EPSP is not enough to generate an action potential, okay? If the threshold is reached at the axon hillock, that initiating region, our voltage-gated channels open up and an action potential is generated. What voltage-gated channels open up? I really, really hope at this point, at least in your head, you have answered the question. What voltage-gated channels open up at this point then, where an action potential is generated?
you got about one in three shot, even if you guess, because we've only talked about three ions. Is it the sodium? What's that? Is it sodium? Is that a guess or a statement? It's a guess. How sure are you? 50. So better than your odds of getting it correct? Yeah. Well, you're correct. Sodium. Okay, remember, sodium channels create the action potential. Okay? So let's look at summation. Let's add all these IPSPs and EPSPs together. We have spatial summation. <clears throat> spatial summation is basically think of it as over space. Okay? Multiple locations on a cell's receptive region receive neurotransmitters simultaneously and generate the postsynaptic potentials. Okay? So think about as multiple locations all at one time. So over a large spatial area. Okay? All at one time. Temporal summation is a little bit different. It's one single presynaptic neuron that repeatedly releases a neurotransmitter and produces multiple EPSPs within a very short amount of time. So think of rapid, or excuse me, think of temporal summation as rapid fire, okay? Spatial summation, a lot over a space all at one time. Temporal summation, rapid fire, one right after the other, okay? And all these do the same thing. They all add together to, with the goal of trying to generate an action potential. Here's what we're looking at with spatial summation. Again, we're taking all of these together. In this case, if we're looking at, uh, we have this chart over here that kind of shows us which ones we're adding together. Here we have two simultaneous EPSPs uh, add together to produce a greater EPSP, okay? So you can pick really any of these. Uh, pick number one, here we have one action potential coming in. Here's a, or even do one and two. Uh, there's an action potential coming in, creates an EPSP on this dendrite. Here's an action potential coming in, creates an EPSP on this, or on this dendrite. Those go into the cell body, they reach together. Uh, we're adding them together. There's one, there's two, they're the same size. You add them together, they've increased a little bit more. So again, at this point, roughly about two millivolts by the time they add together, okay? Here we can take uh, six and seven. You find six and find seven. There's six, there's seven. Those are inhibitory. There comes the inhibitory stimulus down that dendrite, the IPSP down this dendrite. Again, add them together. You'll see what happens. There's one, there's two, and you can see the change is basically double. And now what happens if we add two of them together? Uh, one EPSP, one IPSP. Again, same thing. There's one excitatory, there's one inhibitory. Add them together, they're the same size, and what happens? They cancel each other out, okay? So they basically neutralize each other. That is spatial summation. Again, multiple points across the cell coming in at one time. Now we have temporal summation. This is rapid fire, okay? And so here we have P1 and P2. If you look at them separate where there's time enough to actually go through relaxation. But here, this is what happens if we add them very close together or they come in in rapid fire order. Here comes one, it starts to relax. There comes the second one. You actually enhance the first one. And the same thing is true with IPSPs. 
you get one and a second. There's your individual ones, but if they come in in rapid fire order, you get one, it starts to go back to uh, resting membrane, and before it ever gets a chance to, you enhance that first one by increasing it. So again, they've just added together, just in a slightly different way is all. So as we move down the axon then, we got into the uh, receptive region. Now we're getting into the axon hillock where we're getting into the initiating segment, okay? And if we reach threshold, we begin to generate that action potential. Understand the action potential is an all or none event. Unlike graded potentials, which have varying sizes underneath the threshold stimulus, the action potential is an all or none event. If threshold is reached, the action potential is generated and propagated down the axon without any loss of intensity, okay? So it basically means that once it's generated, it continues the same all the way down the axon. If threshold is not reached and the stimulus is essentially a sub-threshold stimulus, the voltage-gated channels stay closed and there is no action potential, okay? So again, are we ever going to see an action potential that brings us up to, say, zero and then comes back down? No. Because where are we going? What is the peak normally of our action potential? Did we talk about that, what that number is? Yep, positive 30. It's roughly 100 millivolt amplitude, okay? So from minus 70 to positive 30, about 100 millivolts, okay? So we're never gonna have an action potential that peaks at minus 20 or minus 10 or zero or positive 10. It's always gonna go to positive 30 and then come back down, okay? The axon, axon shows the same intensity response to values greater than threshold. You can't have a, I mean, you can have a greater stimulus than uh, a threshold stimulus, but it's not gonna change what the action potential does. The action potential is gonna be the same regardless of the strength of the stimulus, okay? And so we kind of use this, it's, it's very similar to the firing of a gun, right? If you pull the trigger of a gun, the gun fires. Can I take a gun, shoot it straight ahead and say, hey, I, I just want it to fire just a small amount as opposed to, oh, I want this to be a big, a big fire. No, I grab a gun, I pull it, I slightly put enough pressure on the trigger. Once that trigger hits the, uh, the, the firing point, what happens to the bullet? Bang, fires out. I can put a different bullet in and it's gonna fire out with basically the exact same response every single time. Regardless of how fast I pull the trigger, regardless of how slow I pull the trigger, regardless of if I put a lot of pressure on the trigger, the firing is gonna be the same every time. It's the same thing with an action potential. No matter what the stimulus is, if it reaches threshold, reaches that triggering point, it's always gonna be the same, okay? So, let's look at the conductive segment. Let's look at the axon then, okay? So when we look at the axon, obviously this is the area that we have the action potential, okay? The action potential involves depolarization and repolarization. We have to go through the up part, becoming more positive. We also then have to come back down and go through the becoming more negative, okay? Depolarization is a gain of positive charge as sodium enters through the voltage-gated sodium channels. Repolarization is the reverse. 
the return to negative potential as potassium exits through the voltage-gated potassium channels, making the cell more negative. Okay? Again, this stuff we should know already. The action potential is propagated down the axon to the synaptic knobs, uh, where voltage-gated voltage channels open sequentially down the axon axolemma. So as one voltage-gated channel opens, it stimulates the next one to open, and the next one to open, and the next one to open. And as we do this, this is called propagation of the action potential, as we move it down the axon. And that action potential is called a nerve impulse or a nerve signal. And this is conducted down the axons of our neurons. Okay? And so that is an action potential down the conductive region. Again, the action potential, the steps in, the, in depolarization, again, we know that the resting membrane potential, our voltage-gated channels are closed. They're not stimulated by any voltage changes at that point. Uh, and so here, uh, sodium enters from the adjacent region as our voltage-gated channels open. So here's our axon hillock, okay? At this point, we're at minus 70. If we have enough of a stimulus to reach threshold, okay, it's going to generate a change in voltage. That change in voltage then stimulates additional voltage-gated sodium channels to open. As additional voltage-gated sodium channels open, obviously what happens? At that particular point, what's happening with those voltage-gated channels? I will tell you, they opened first. What happens next after they have opened? Uh, before they close. What happens when voltage-gated channels open? They open because why? Something is about to happen. And so, in this case, since they're voltage-gated sodium channels, what is about to happen? Sodium is going to enter the cell. Right. Sodium is going to uh, enter the cell and stimulate this change in voltage. Okay? And so now, We've become more positive. We've reached threshold. And so now, and I realize this is not a voltage-gated sodium channel, okay? Uh, necessarily, at least for this example. But if we have this open, then we're going to move to the next. It's going to stimulate the next voltage-gated channel to open. And the next voltage-gated channel to open. And you're going to start to see this move down. Next one, next one, next one, next one, next one, next one, next one. All the way down that axon until the next grouping of voltage-gated channels are open and allow more sodium to flood in. And that forces the next ones down the line to open, okay? And that allows that to continue down. So sodium enters the axon, causing the membrane to have a positive or a more positive potential, okay? 
And so, once we reach the peak then, at number, th number three here, step three, we've reached positive 30. Now, we start to see where these uh, gates on the sodium channel begin to close, okay? And so here we have both channel or both gates open. Now we start to see the inactivation gates begin to close, okay? As the inactivation gates close, that actually blocks the flow of sodium. And so now we start to hit the peak. Now we start to revert back down, okay? And so now we're in the process of repolarization. So as sodium channels begin to close then at this point, what do you think begins to open? At the very peak, what now begins to open? Potassium channels. Voltage-gated potassium channels. And so now what is happening to the cell then? Going back to negative. Right. It's starting to revert back to negative as potassium moves which direction? Back into the cell? Other way. Back out of the cell? Out of the cell. As so potassium moves out of the cell, we're now becoming more negative. I did say potassium, right? As potassium is moving back out of the cell, we're making that cell more negative. And so now we're actually starting to revert ourselves back down, and that is repolarization then, okay? So again, sodium channels closed, becoming inactive. Uh, they're unable to open temporarily. Steps one to four repeat in adjacent regions, and the impulse moves towards the synaptic knob, okay? With depolarization, uh, the potassium channels slowly open then, and potassium now begins to diffuse out, causing negative membrane potential, or causing the cell to become a little bit more negative. And so now we're on our way down, okay? The potassium channels stay open for a longer time, okay? Again, potassium channels are slow. They don't respond quite as fast as what sodium channels do. So as we go through repolarization on the way down, we'll actually find out that our potassium channels stay open for just an extra bit longer and allows for an extra uh, efflux of potassium out of the cell. As it does that, it actually dips just below what our resting membrane potential is to right around minus 85 to minus 90. And so it allows that hyperpolarization phase to occur, okay? And then at that point, once we reach hyperpolarization, uh, the potassium channels eventually close and the resting membrane potential is reestablished uh, through leakage channels and through our sodium potassium pump, okay? Now, understand this whole process, how long is that? Any guesses? The entire process from start of depolarization to the end of hyperpolarization. How long? A few milliseconds. Yeah, a very few milliseconds. Roughly about four to five. So think about how fast that signal is, okay? And even if you had hundreds of connections going from point A to point B, you're talking what, times five? So you're talking 500 milliseconds? I mean, we're still talking very fast communication, okay? Um, these are the events of the action potential. Again, it kind of gives us an overview. This shows what happens with graded potentials as they start to summate. Uh, this example, what type of summation is that? 
it has the wave of uh, has the wave pattern. The summation that we just talked about, which type is that? Temporal. Spatial or temporal? Temporal. This is temporal. Okay. We have a chance to just have a slight repolarization before that next one hits. Okay. And so they just kind of increase right away. Okay. So that is temporal summation. Again, if we look at all the phases, that's a resting membrane or a resting neuron, no change. There's our graded potentials add together with temporal summation in this case, enough to reach threshold. We see the peak. This is depolarization. What channels are open? Sodium. Sodium channel, voltage gated sodium channels. We reach the peak. What channels close? Voltage gated sodium. What channels open? Voltage gated potassium. Voltage gated potassium. And then we start the repolarization process. What channels are closed during this? Voltage. Sodium. Yep, voltage gated sodium channels uh, down through hyperpolarization. What channels are open? What channels are closed during hyperpolarization? Sodium's closed and potassium's open. Sodium's closed, potassium open. We go through hyperpolarization. We regenerate our action or our resting membrane potential by leakage channels and by the sodium potassium pump. And now we get back to our RMP. Okay. This is this is our action potential. Okay, this is what we see on a tracking or a uh, voltage gauge of what actually happens. Okay, so make sure we have kind of a good idea, a good understanding of what's going on. Then we get down to our conductive segment. Okay, or continue down our conductive segment. We have the refractory period. Refractory period. This is the part of time after the start of an action potential when it's impossible or difficult to fire another action potential. Okay? So again, where it's difficult or impossible to fire another action potential. The absolute refractory period is about one millisecond. This basically is occurring during depolarization. Okay? It's at this point, no stimulus can initiate. <coughs> No stimulus can initiate another action potential. Uh, the sodium channels are open and then inactivated right after that. Okay? It ensures the propagation goes towards the synaptic knob. So it basically is ensuring one-way transmission down the axon so that the transmission can't come back towards the cell body. Okay? So the absolute refractory period ensures one-way transmission. Relative refractory period follows the absolute refractory period. And it's at this point where another action potential is possible because at this point, the sodium channels have reset, okay? But it takes uh, a little bit stronger stimulus, okay? So now the minimum stimulus strength is greater, okay? For just a short period of time. Some potassium channels are still open, the cell is, the cell is still slightly hyperpolarized, and further from threshold, okay? So again, we need a light, slightly stronger stimulus, okay? So if we look at this graph here, in two, our threshold has been reached. Here we have our, again, depolarization going up, repolarization going down, and hyperpolarization. If you look where we're at 
Here's our absolutely, or absolutely, here's our period. This is basically where we reach that at hyperpolarization, okay? And this is where we hit that relative refractory period, where we can generate another action potential, but the stimulus has to be significantly stronger than what it did before, okay? So as we continue with that conductive segment, we also look at the effect of myelin. And that's where we get saltatory and continuous conduction, okay? And so we look at the effects of those. With continuous conduction, this occurs on unmyelinated axons, okay? There is no myelination, so we're not jumping from space to space. We actually have to send the, the signal, the axon, literally down the entire length of the axon, and it all goes at the same pace, which is a little bit slower, okay? Uh, the charge opens voltage-gated channels, which allows the charge to enter, which spreads to adjacent regions and opens more channels sequentially. Basically the same as what we've talked about so far. That's pretty normal. The difference is that we're doing this without a myelinated area. So some of these areas are actually going to lose some of those ions. And so essentially it's like having to regenerate that charge or regenerate that signal at every little section of the axon. When we look at saltatory conduction, this occurs in myelinated axons. So it's just slightly different, okay? The action potential only occurs at the neurofibril nodes, which basically are uh, the spaces between our Schwann cells, okay? Do you remember what those were? What were the neurofibril nodes, or the spaces between uh, our Schwann cells? Nodes of Ranvier, okay? And so we're basically only having the action potential occur at those because the Schwann cells and the oligodendrocytes basically myelinate or insulate certain little segments of it, okay? And so it's at these points, okay? It's at these nodes where we actually have the channels, okay? There are no channels, there are no voltage-gated channels underneath our Schwann cells and our oligodendrocytes, okay? So our cells don't have to regenerate that signal at every little stretch. It actually gets to go from node to node, and that signal gets transmitted through the myelinated portion. And so it moves really, really quick. Really, really quickly. Um, after sodium enters uh, at a node, it starts a rapid, a rapid positive current down the inside of the axon, uh, axon's myelinated region. The current becomes weaker with distance, okay? But it's still strong enough to open the voltage-gated channels at the next node. The full action potential occurs at the node and the process repeats, essentially recharging that action potential to a certain degree, okay? And so it appears then that when you look at it, it's actually jumping from node to node. And so again, saltatory conduction is much faster than continuous conduction and the myelinated cells use less ATP to maintain that, mess, that resting membrane potential, okay? So here we have propagation of an action potential. This on the left is continuous conduction. This on the right is saltatory conduction. Again, here we're unmyelinated, okay? And so with the unmyelinated axon, we actually have a situation where we're literally having to regenerate every channel along that particular axon. Okay, 
So it takes a little bit of time for us to do that. When we look at saltatory conduction, again, here's where our channels are. They're at the nodes. So here we stimulate a couple channels, and then it flies through the insulated region where ions can't escape. So it maintains the charge as it goes down, and then it doesn't have to do it again. Okay? And then it slides on down and does it again. And so it kind of diffuses straight through the myelinated or the insulated region. Okay? So again, it then appears that we're actually going from node to node. Okay? And that is uh, uh, saltatory and continuous conduction. Our last region then is at the transmissive segment, or basically the uh, secretory region, if you will. So this is the synaptic knob and the axon terminal. We have the arrival of the action potential. Uh, we have, again, some of this we're going to know already. Stimulates voltage-gated calcium channels. Those voltage-gated calcium channels are going to go into the axon terminal. They're going to bind to the uh, secretory vesicles and cause the release of uh, our neurotransmitter. Okay? Uh, the vesicles fuse with the membrane. The neurotransmitter is released into the cleft. Again, notice that we're not saying necessarily acetylcholine. We're saying a neurotransmitter because in the nervous system, we can have neuro or neurotransmitters that are inhibitory as well. Okay? So the neurotransmitter binds to the postsynaptic receptors. Neurons can synthesize more than one neurotransmitter. Only one type is released at a time and is dependent on the frequency of the action potentials that reach the synaptic knob. Okay? So again, the frequency and, and what type of stimulus we have determines what type of neurotransmitter is released. And again, we take a look at the synaptic knob and the axon terminal. The nerve signal will arise, stimulates our voltage-gated calcium channels, which now flood into the uh, axon terminal, binds to our secretory vesicles, which cause them to be moved toward the uh, terminal end of our axon and released by what process? What process do we release our neurotransmitters by? Exocytosis, where it crosses the synaptic cleft and then bind to our chemically gated uh, channels, which depends on what neurotransmitter is released, could allow sodium to flood in, or could cause chlorine to flood in, and could be excitatory or inhibitory, causing an IPSP or an EPSP, okay? It just depends on the response. So, if we start to look then at greater potentials and action potentials, again, some of this we already have an idea because we touched on them a little bit. Graded potentials occur in the neuron's receptive region, and this is due to ion flow through chemically gated channels. They can be positive or negative changes in charge, again, which means they can be IPSPs or EPSPs. They can cause a change in the cell to become more positive, or they can become more negative. Okay? The cells are graded, which means they have larger potential change to stronger stimulus, and they're local, which means they're very local changes. They only travel short distances. But if they travel long enough to reach the cell body and add together, we can now add or create our action potential. The action potentials occur on the neuron's conductive region due to ion flow through voltage-gated channels. They involve depolarization, which is sodium in, potassium out during repolarization. It's an all or none once the threshold is released, and it propagates down the entire axon to the synaptic knob. Okay? So again, some of the major characteristics between the two. Graded potentials, short-lived, travels short distances, can be positive or negative, or cause positive or negative changes. 
action potentials, all or none. It's the same all the time. It's always excitatory, and it moves down the entire length of the axon regardless. Okay? So those are some of the differences between uh, action potentials and gradient potentials. We also then look at the uh, velocity and how fast some of these signals actually move down the axon. And the conduction speed of our action potential really depends on axon diameter, but also myelination. We know myelination is going to do what to the actor, what to the action potential as far as speed? Faster or slower? Faster. Ah, it's going to make it faster. Okay. The diameter also has an effect. Okay. Thicker fibers conduct the action potential faster than what thinner ones do, because essentially there's less resistance to the current flow down the axon. And then we also again know that myelinated fibers conduct um, the action potential much faster than unmyelinated ones do because of that insulation. Right? If we look at some of the nerve fibers in the groups, we first have to look at what the nerve fiber itself is. And the nerve fiber is the axon in its myelin sheath. Okay? And we look at some of the fiber types and the groupings, we have group A fibers, and they're going to conduct or have a conduction velocity upwards of 150 meters per second. And so think about how fast that is. And we think about how long some of our axons are. Okay? Again, we said some of the longest axons really can be the length of your leg. So if your leg really is you know, one meter, think about how fast it took from that signal go from your toe and to go all the way up at least just to your spinal cord. I mean, again, fractions of a second. Okay? Again, group A, large diameter, myelinated fibers. These include most of our somatic sensory neurons and somatic motor neurons. And what are we supposed to think of when we think of somatic? Skin, skeletal muscle, and joint. Okay? So we have skin, skeletal muscle, joint. The sensory coming from those, and then motor going to our skeletal muscle. Okay? So again, very fast communication. Group B conducts at about 15 meters per second, and group C at about one meter per second. So still pretty fast, but almost 10 times slower to 150 times slower than what we have with group A fibers. These tend to be small diameter and unmyelinated, and this is going to include a lot of our visceral neurons and some of our somatic sensory neurons from the skin, although not very many. Most of them are going to be group A fibers. Any questions on anything today? This will be a really good place to stop because it basically finishes us with the actual neuron and all of the regions up to this point. Again, uh, final exam, the Tuesday, the first Tuesday of finals week. Uh, we have class on that Thursday. We follow up with our final exam and exam four on that following Tuesday. Uh, bonus quiz should be up and available here in just a few minutes. Uh, if you try to go take it and it's not, somebody email me to let me know, but I'm pretty sure it should be. And then um, if you do want to come take a look at your exams, Again, you're more than welcome to. I'll be up in the office. Um, I just got to run up to the uh, 
department office real quick, check my mailbox, and I will be up there. So I'll be up there in about two minutes. Questions? Okay. You are free to go. Have a great weekend. Well, my teacher, if you have like the right words, please. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Let her off or something. You might have known what it was. Questions are just all. What do you mean? Like on some of my practicals, he gives us like questions, and like there's like two or four ones, and he just like two calls, and not so good. What was called? Our practical is we have to know and we have to know how to spell it. We have to, there's no multiple choice or anything. It's literally we go in and we have to like. Okay, that's what I thought. I just want to make sure. We have to know. Like there's no choices. He wants to give us our everything. Yes, it definitely makes a difference. Uh, yeah, it's already down there. So go right there. Thank you.